welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast, a project dedicated to exploring the world of anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas. Join us in our conversations with radical voices in precarious times. To find future episodes, make sure to subscribe on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other places where podcasts are found. If you'd like to become a contributing member of the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash media. Every little bit counts, and we appreciate all the support we can get. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word, and so you can stay updated with our most recent episodes. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy. everyone. Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Williamson, and today we have on Lucy Staggerwald as a guest. Lucy is a libertarian anarchist and journalist who is a contributing editor at Antiwar.com. She has a blog called The Stag Blog, and her articles have appeared at Playboy, Vice, Reason, The Pittsburgh Tribune Review, The Washington Post, The Daily Beast, and more. Lucy, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. A good way to spend a Saturday. Hey, I pronounce it Staggerwald, right? <laughs> well, even though my Yinzer cousin pronounces it that way, I think officially Staggerwald. So a little less on the stagger. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how German you want to get here. Staggerwald, please. Staggerwald. <laughs> so how's it going over there in Pittsburgh? Um, it's gross and humid and... For the benefit of this fine podcast, I have turned off my fan, so if I die, I guess it's your fault. I feel that. It's gross and humid here, too, and I've turned off my air conditioner. So. Nice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's try so to we die it. together. <laughs> For the sake of the cause. <laughs> All right. So, Lucy, you've been writing for some time, and your work focuses on everything from the drug war to police brutality to international war. How did you start your career in journalism and what inspires you to write about the topics you focus on? That's a good old question. Um, I got like the cheat code, the life cheat code, such as it is of having a libertarian journalist father. Mm. And I was homeschooled. So starting when I was like a tween, my dad would bring home a stack of magazines. My brother and I would read them. And it was like this great cross section of dubious ones like the Weekly Standard. There's a nation reason underline that one um freedom daily which is what fff's little booklet used to be called and now it's called something else i think because mm-hmm. it never came out daily so that didn't make sense mm-hmm. and so like i got bursts of minarchism from my dad so i sort of eased that way but then i read a lot of reason when i was a teenager and sheldon richmond's writing in we'll just say freedom daily because i'm blanking on what it's called now uh sheldon richmond was a really big influence on me still is and anthony gregory who kind of left the movement for the wonderful world of academia which fair enough was kind of the last gasp of all right no more night watchman state at all and that was at an independent institute conference that my dad also was like hey you're going to california go to this so Dad is the foundation and all all those who led to dad being libertarian. So second gen libertarian. Yep. I'm in small but noble company with like J.D. Chuchilli and Avins O'Brien and Angela Keaton. Yeah. What about your mom? Was she a libertarian or radical thinker at all? I'm going to tell you a little secret that I feel like at this point my mom is more anarchist. Ooh. <laughs> I feel like my mom's a market anarchist. I do. It's in her soul. She's from Montana. That's badass. (laughs) She comes from like a Democrat, low-key Democrat family. Uh And she just kind of was like, uh, she describes it as like she went on a date with my dad and was like, and my dad being a huge dork wasn't like, whatever you say, lady, I'm chatting up. He was like, let me rant about libertarianism because that's what (laughs) that's what our people do. Um, and yeah. just, you know, told her some stuff, some backgrounds, and this is what I believe. And apparently she was like, oh, yeah, I get that. So. And then and <laughs> then how. she she read some Sheldon Richmond and now she's waving a black flag. <laughs> um, well, I'm not waving a black flag either. I just feel like. <laughs> well, real anarchists burn black flags. Ooh, sexy pull quote. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Um, no, I just feel like, I don't know, too many rants, too many conversations about how blowing people up 
you really can't justify it no matter how hard you try if you Mm -hmm. really think about it and she kind of gets that kind of thing so that's cool let's go back to the the journalism thing a little bit How how did you start your career in that why do you write about the topics that you do how did i start it's weird. It was either going to be something more overtly historical or it was going to be something with writing. And in college, I, you know, I don't want to like over credit just picking a major as like a big deal. But I did shift a little towards that more than the history minor I ended up getting. I interned at a local place and I interned at Reason eventually. In terms of topics, you know, Sheldon and Anthony for war stuff a, a lot. Radley Balco one of my personal heroes, big influence. I used to read his agitator blog a lot. I don't know. There's lots of stuff. It was just a slow increase in being horrified by stuff. I I like to credit 2009, even though I was pretty far into whatever I am. um, G20 came to my town and there's nothing to make you feel like a thousand riot cops to make you feel like, get out of my town. Damn, yeah. I mean, it's such a junior version of like an occupation, you know, but it has... Mm -hmm. The mindset is there. And I don't I don't I totally don't be like, I know how it feels, man. But like it feels like this little invasion. And it's also this feeling of for all that they've done during this weekend, all the overkill, um, they could do so much more than they're doing and they would still get away with it. Things like that. So that that's one experience that helped push you into start writing about these things. Yeah, I mean, I remember after G20, I emailed Radley and I was like, I know this isn't like Corey May or some like big life and death thing, but like, look at some of these YouTube videos from this night. It was totally over the top. You know, they were tear gassing University of Pittsburgh kids on their own campus just for being outside because, you know, 800 riot cops outside is kind of a site that you want to go see because it's interesting. Yeah, that's insane. What sparked that? Why did that happen? I mean, G20, you know, it has all the uh, more important than we are people. They had a ton of out of town cops, Pittsburgh cops, I'm sure were bad. They just they met every potential provocation with lines of riot cops. They just went over the top. They they did this, you know, pincher move that I narrowly escaped. My friends and I just kind of wandered, like tried to follow the whole event and keep keep our eyes out for, you know, when we needed to flee. And we ended up like running into Cindy Sheehan a bunch, <laughs> who was, you know, a Bush administration staple of like yelling at Bush. Um, mm-hmm. And I just, you know, we, we jumped over railing, ran into a dorm that wasn't ours. And then there were rubber bullets flying and nobody like 150 people were arrested for nothing. And it was it was minor. But, you know, the worst video I've seen of that night, I didn't witness it. But the worst it always gets me is this video from around the pit dorms. I'm sure I was very close by, but I didn't see this. And these girls are trying to get up back to their dorm, up the stairs. And they're asking this one riot cop. And the one girl's bleeding from, I think, a rubber bullet. And the way that they have to beg the cop and plead and like be really obsequious and just like, please, sir, we, oh, please, sir, sir, sir. And like the amount of I, I don't blame them for this, but the amount of pleading they have to do to get by to where they live when this girl is bleeding. That sticks in my mind as just a perfect example. of yeah. you know Not the biggest police brutality you've ever seen, but this terrible, mm-hmm. disturbing mindset. God, that's horrible. Well, I want to ask you a, a related question. What do you think is wrong with mainstream journalism and how do we fix it? That is a huge question. <laughs> I mean, my, my usual answer, like I always said that the mainstream media discovered that police brutality was a story with national consequences about when Ferguson happened. You know, and people like Radley, places like Reason, some more decent far left outlets knew this. But there, especially with local reporting, there was just years and years of puff pieces about the local police and a fundamental trust in authority figures. I did what ended up a not polished journalism thesis on um, media coverage of Waco and Ruby Ridge. And I mostly just tried to look at the way they talked about these situations, the media, that they had no idea what was happening. And particularly at Waco, you have people reporting on what the feds are saying, you know, on any given day, and they're not qualifying it by saying, well, we don't know because we can't get anywhere near the situation. And the people telling us X are the ones preventing us. You know, there are two parties. One is preventing the press from going anywhere near the other party. And yet so many outlets and publications, individuals reported as if, well, Fed said it. It's true. 
And that kind of trust is um, a huge problem. And another huge problem is the fundamental laziness. And I don't have, I'm too scattered. I always hope I'll change this to do, you know, the really deep stories that I wish I did. But the press, they thrive on outrage of the day, outrage of the second. And they always did before Twitter and Trump insanity. And, you know, when something like a Snowden-like big story gets literally dumped in their lap, then they can report decently on that. But there's very little digging and there's very little looking at institutions that you and I probably hate and going, why does that exist? Should that exist? What Mm -hmm. kind of harm is that doing? And the same with policies, too. It's just it's a surface level acceptance. And it's not about the way conservative media might say oh, it's full of lies, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's more like a surface factual report a lot of the time, I think, you know? Yeah. Like there are these, yeah. Sort of, yeah, just like a really shallow analysis and never challenging the establishment, just sort of reinforcing the status quo. I mean, generally, there's always exceptions and there always has been, but that's a general critique that I would agree with. So how do we fix it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I found myself not as prolific in writing during Trump and more like confused about how I should be portraying things because there are people who are acting like because the liberal media is rife with things to hate and they're being weird right now that somehow they're the bigger enemy than, you know, the executive branch, things like that. I just it, it was it was a lot easier to be Captain No Fun under Obama and be like, yeah, he's he's your cool college professor, guys. But look what else is happening. <laughs> right. That's an easy position to be in. And it's not like it's any less alienating. Um, people still don't like you. But there's a clarity there that I have a feeling other libertarians feel the same ways. And it's not just like, well, we secretly hate Democrats more or anything. But it's like there's an easy roadmap there for people who hate all government or even, you know, night watchman state types. Yeah, I don't know. And it's just, it's so hard to oh, dealing with the fact that liberals cannot see when Democrats do war crimes or encroach on civil liberties or what is so it's beyond frustrating. Like as far as the majority of people in Austin are concerned, Obama deserved the Nobel Peace Prize. Like he didn't do anything wrong. And I feel like even Obama <laughs> probably knows he doesn't deserve the Nobel Peace Prize. Like, oh, I'll give him enough credit for that. I yeah. hope so. Yeah. Let, let's go here. Who's your most favorite and least favorite American journalist? Mm. Least, <laughs> least favorite, um, as much as journalists are a disaster. I don't, you know, like the worst people, do I even give them the mantle of journalist? But, I mean, William Crystal is a, is a good choice. Uh, David Frum. There's there's a lot of bad people. My really most hated probably are either the obvious neocons, but also sort of the the dullard columnists types who oh Max Boot Socks, he's ridiculous. But I also hate the sort of the Dana Milbank types who have this faux reasonable faux centrism, but they're actually just really shallow and they're actually entirely biased in favor of the status quo. Like, I always think of this Dana Milbank, two different Dana Milbank columns. One was making fun of Chelsea Manning being torched in prison, or basically making a cheap joke about it, you know. And the other was whining because Dick Cheney said fuck in some context, like mm-hmm. maybe on the Senate floor. I can't even remember the details. Mm-hmm. But I was like, that's perfect. This is this is where your priorities are. Yeah. You, you care about being respectable and and, and not profane. So there's a lot of types that I'm not a fan of. Yeah, it's super cheap. So who's your who's your most favorite? Radley is still really high on my list, but his wife Liliana Segura um, is one of the best, more left, probably lefter than I am, journalists who does some really amazing death penalty reporting. So like that's a dynamic duo right there. I mean <laughs> that's what comes to mind right now, and that they'd be they'd be pretty top of my list. Okay, what are your thoughts on Julian Assange? Uh, he's a toughie, isn't he? Yeah, a bit of a mixed bag, I'd say. Yeah, I think that he might be a creep, but it's totally reasonable to think, you know, either those accusations against him in Sweden, you know, they could be entirely true. Regardless, they were really convenient for states, you know. And I think that that kind of person often is maybe a creep in their personal life. And people who really want that person shut up will jump on those accusations 
Chelsea Manning, I feel more um, protective of because mm-hmm. I guess living in a an embassy for a long ass time isn't great. But but like I mean, Julian Assange, like I don't you know whether it's journalism or not, we can't act like it's a science. It's it, it it's a public service, so I don't really like that term either. I suppose. I just, you know, why would we think the government deserves to keep its secrets? Yeah. Or why would we think that even if there are secrets that, you know, should be kept, that they have any trustworthiness in terms of picking those secrets? Because everything's classified until we, you know, say otherwise. Um, Even if you believe that the government gets to keep some secrets, the government itself can't be trusted to decide what those are. Right, right. Totally. Between you, Carl Hess, Robert Anton Wilson, and others that I'm sure I'm forgetting, it seems Playboy magazine has a history of rubbing shoulders with radical thinkers. Why do you think so many libertarians and anarchists have published there? I have heard, I don't know, like super, like I haven't read any really deep dives, I guess, but I've heard that Hugh Hefner originally was a little more partial to libertarianism and even maybe objectivism flirting with that, just that he, you know, he was pushing these boundaries at the time and he he was edgy, which seems strange at this point. And, you know, the more of a cultural institution he and the magazine became, the more he knew more liberals and he might have shifted on that. Also, he became like a super old dude. Um, but, I, you know, I mean, like obviously the Carl Hess essay, at least the death of politics one. I mean, that when I realized that was in Playboy, I was I was impressed by that because that's not them now. But, you know, there's, there's this element of like huh, libertarian doesn't mean libertine guys, which like libertarian leaning conservatives or what have you say sometimes. But sometimes there are these bedfellows with, you know, sex workers, pornography peddlers and something like Playboy where, you know, the fringe coming together. And it's a lot nicer fringe than like racist cliche in a shed guy who also wants the government to leave him alone. So, you know, those people, the fringe uh, obscene people, I think, Mm. have been our friends for a long time and should still be. By the way, I was trying to look up your articles there because I know you've published there and they weren't showing up. What's up with that? Oh, I'm still so bitter about that. <laughs> they did a website revamp and appears to have never brought back author archives. Um, and I'm not alone in suffering from this, but I had a lot of stuff on there and some stuff I'm really proud of to this day. Some stuff I would have considered my best work. And that I wrote consistently for them for at least six months. And just the fact that that's I have to use the Wayback Machine to even cite that, you know, in a pitch or or a a job application is infuriating. It's just, you know, Playboy, I think I don't know what they're up to these days, but their editorial stuff was in flux and was a huge disaster for years, I think, and perhaps still is. So, oh, well. Yeah, well, that does suck. So if if people want to read your articles there, they've got (laughs) to. Find the link and then go to Wayback Machine, basically. It sucks. Yeah. You were on C-SPAN not that long ago. What was that all about? That was really weird. C-SPAN was sort of incidental, but it made the whole thing more surreal. A military national and public service asked me to come talk about mandatory national service because they're this committee doing an exploratory thing involves thinking about what would bring back the draft be involves consideration of drafting women. And my particular afternoon involved just talking about should national service be mandatory? And I first thought it was like a weird joke. And I was like, you've Googled me, so you know what I'm going to say. And they were very sweet, all of them. And that was part of what was so frightening. And Doug Bandow from Cato was also there. And he kind of carried the weight of liberty on his shoulders because he's you know more experienced at that kind of thing. And he was really great. And there were two old dudes who were so nice and they had such terrifying ideas and they were so like, oh, young people today need coercion. And the people running the who organized everything, they were all so nice. And it was just this surreal experience of like, look how friendly and nice people advocating for just unconscionable things can be. And it's really important to be reminded of that. And it's just good to be faced with people who have a little more power, who are still being very nice very polite to you. They invited you there to be a dissenting voice and they're still just saying such scary things. Yeah, totally. I thought you did a great job too. I think you invoked Lysander Spooner during that speech. 
I did. If I had a bucket list, quoting the Sanders Spooner in front of a government commission would have been on it. Anytime I have low self-esteem, I should be like, I did that. Uh, <laughs> could not resist. Could not resist. Hell yeah. I was so excited when you did that too. <laughs> so what was their response to the whole thing? Were they like, okay, Lucy's right. Let's drop this whole stupid shit that yes, we're talking they about. Were. So you um, saved us. Lucy, you single-handedly saved us from a draft. That was me, all right. That's awesome. <laughs> no, they did not. And they had a draft. They had later talks about having a draft. After my talk, the coolest part was meeting Paul Jacob, who is a libertarian sort who pops up now and then. And I first heard about him while filing old Reason magazines because he had gone to jail for, I think, like six months in the 80s, probably, for refusing to register for the selective service. And meeting him was a, was a small thrill and just reminded me that not to be grandiose, but like I'm not alone, you know, and there are people who have actually paid a cost and those people are right and they're still out there. So for sure, for sure. In past episodes, we've discussed how libertarianism has become a difficult label for some people to continue to identify with. There's a few reasons for this, I suppose, but one of them, unfortunately, is because we've seen Folks in the milieu who have turned alt-light or alt-right, and some people say there's a libertarian to alt-right pipeline. What are your thoughts on all that? There are a couple of answers. You could say, well, those people were never libertarians, or they clearly had no commitment to it. Um, but I liked Sheldon's whole thing, where he's like, yeah, you can be a selfish, racist, jerk, libertarian, that kind of thing. But that's going to be a worse foundation than a peace-loving, kind of cosmopolitan, without the beltway sellout parts. Um, that's a better foundation for the kind of society that libertarians want. Sometimes I think about the clip I've seen of uh, Bill Maher making fun of Ruby Ridge on his politically incorrect uh, show back in the day and think that, like, we have to remember the people who are not perfect victims of the state and kind of have their backs, too. But that doesn't mean treating them all the same. And things like the Mises Institute's bizarre toleration of people like Gary North, who, you know, is a theocrat. Uh, <laughs> Libertarians make these huge mistakes. Um, we, we, I'm going to equate the big L and small L right now, but like the Libertarian Party was the first to be totally fine with gay marriage, any kind of consenting, consensual thing there. But then like Mises and even Ron Paul were like, Gary North, yeah, theocrat who wants to st stone gays, but privately. Like we, are, we have <laughs> so much to be proud of and so much to be embarrassed about. It becomes this self-parody, but you see it um, places sometimes. <laughs> or just, you know, I'm obviously I'm going to machine gun any child who chases a frisbee onto my property. Like, people who haven't heard of proportionality and stuff. Um, sure. I mean, there are people who want, I don't know, I mean, like, there are free speech advocates who, who want to use that free speech to advocate for being a huge Nazi. And... There's a surprising number of people hosting actual Nazi podcasts who are like, oh, yeah, I used to be a libertarian, you guys. Um, or there are people like Augustus Invictus, who who is not a libertarian. That dude is know? a LARPing goon. <laughs> Even besides the content, his speeches are so over the top dramatic that I was like, why does the appeal here? I don't get I it. I will say one path to a bad conclusion that I see, I don't sympathize with this, but I feel like I see how it happens, is libertarians are not democracy stands. Like, we don't think that, oh, we voted, so it's okay. You know, people voted for all sorts of things. And it's not, you know, they vote for our terrible president. They voted for, like, Prop 8, which was literally, like, forcibly divorcing gay people. I mean, once you get suspicious of democracy... And once you start getting suspicious of the panacea idea of voting and when once you start saying, well, voting probably isn't, you know, the most important right to have, then you can start going down this strange road to like weird monarchical <laughs> ideas and weird Hoppe stuff. And suddenly it can turn into like a, this weird low level fascist apologism. And I don't it's not a natural route, but I can still see how it happens. It's for people who don't love human freedom. 
it doesn't have the foundation that a love of freedom and a desire for other people to be free and a desire even for cosmopolitanism and trade and even, you know, diversity, ideally, in, in all ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you don't love that, it's harder to be sort of a real libertarian or anarchist. Yeah, it's certainly not conducive to a free society. Yeah, that's I think that's a pretty fair analysis. Like the whole anti-democracy thing can go in a lot of directions. And as soon as you start researching that, you might eventually find yourself supporting theocracy. Which is very silly. Don't do that. I mean, that's one of those things like, you know, like the Walter Block slave contract thing. One of the great libertarian questions that we've spent way too much time pondering. That and like the legitimacy of bestiality, which I swear to God always came up in the live journal libertarian group of your you know, there's a whisper of like, okay, there's actually something to ponder here, but like, let's not. Those aren't big questions, guys. <laughs> oh, man. In the future, when people look up libertarianism on Wikipedia, it'll be the endless debate about bestiality and slave contracts. Yeah. Very important. And the uh, age of consent laws. Oh, God. That's where it Again, starts to like, stop. So legitimate. <laughs> and yet the people who are way too invested in that cause. Oh, yeah. no. Yeah, totally. Oh, no. Speaking uh, of uh, Uncle Block, I've heard him get more upset over libertarian feminism, the idea of libertarian feminism. I mean, I, I think I've heard him say there's nothing wrong with libertarian Nazis as long yeah. as it's voluntary. Well, <laughs> let's all think about his book and its title. Defending That's his the libertarian Nazi. No, defending oh. the defendable. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on a little bit. I want to talk about a few of the articles that you've written. But before I ask any specific questions about those, I wanted to ask you, what's the article that you're most proud of? Hmm. It depends on what I was trying to get across. You know, sometimes I feel most proud that five million years ago, I got to guest blog for Radley at the Washington Post over a weekend. I don't know if that was like my greatest work. A lot of my favorite things I've written were some of the Playboy stuff. My very strange, drunken interview with Milo Yiannopoulos, who we've all blessedly forgot about, um, was a good one. And one that got killed and published at, oh God, is it Splice Today or Daily? For the life of me, I keep switching those. But it was just like a weird tale of going to see David Icke speak, who is the guy who gave us the whole lizard, reptilian, space aliens run stuff. The son of God. Yeah, yeah, that was his first thing. He he decided he was the son of God, and then he went from there. But that was like legit, just like an excuse to hang out with John Ronson. But it was still what I really like, which is writing a long feature in a strange environment and letting people say what they're going to say. So that one you can find without Wayback Machine, which is very exciting. Cool. Yeah, I read that David Icke one. That was pretty interesting. That whole (laughs) conference seemed like it might have had some, how do I say this? Some people who don't fit in the mainstream. That was the most delicate way anyone has ever said anything. But yes. Or you could say like anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists. Yeah, it was like I couldn't have planned it better. I mean, Ronson's writing and his companion documentary talk about this. And I love Ronson because he has sort of the perfect distance from his subjects. And he knows who deserves more sympathy than other people or more benefit of the doubt. And he spends this time in the documentary portion with Ike and some of his followers. And Ike's going to speak in Canada. And there's this whole crew of people trying to prevent him from speaking. And Ronson's sympathies are much more on Ike, even though he thinks he's a goof. But then at the end, he hears, you know, some sort of quietly anti-Semitic remarks, which is straight up what happened when I went to see Ike. Ike himself talks forever. I only saw half of it. And it was six hours. Um, That's crazy. And literally, as I was getting into my Uber at the end of the night, I was beat. I heard two people talking about the protocols of the elders of Zion as if it were real. That was the last thing I heard. I was like, wow, that's horrible. But thanks for the perfect ending for my piece, which seems made up or is chronologically dubious. But it wasn't. mm -hmm. It was so odd. Yeah, I kind of I kind of just want to be John Ronson and Radley Balco when I grow up, as it were, still <laughs> long way away. But I'm working on that. Yeah. One of the articles that you wrote that I thought was interesting is about right wing political correctness. Can you explain to the audience what that's all about? That was like just a, a wee little um, Patreon rant. And, 
you know, this is not my idea, but this is an idea that has not have nearly enough legs. <laughs> There's a Washington Post article from a couple of years ago. Basically, it talked about right wing political correctness and what it looks like. And what it tends to look like is societal obsession with yay military, yay cops protect flag, things like that. And even places like Reason, who have some really great people, lean too heavily on the side of pretending like college twerps, or sometimes not, depending, that they're the this biggest threat to freedom. Groups of people who have, who, who have been oppressed and are oppressed today, to me, is such a more sympathetic, understandable, and good motivation than but you were mean to my rectangle. And my uncle, the cop, doesn't kill people. So shut up about the other ones who did. I guess I did talk about this. My niece's graduation from high school, where they applauded everybody joining the military and had people from different branches come to shake their hand. And they, there was the Pledge of Allegiance or the National Anthem or something. Who cares? And people stood up for it. And it's just everywhere you know it, it gets in every crack of society in ways that people don't even realize and that's so much worse and libertarians have this lingering feeling like we're somehow part of the right in some way just because fox news lets a libertarian have one seat at the table you know and occasionally say some stuff but this lingering sympathy for like oh well the right like small government right yeah i think that's I think we have to let that go. It's long overdue to let that go. The right sacred cows are more abstract, more systematically dangerous than, than the lefts. And, you, you know, the lefts need to be countered sometimes, too. Free speech needs to be defended. But it needs to be defended from all angles and also from cosmopolitan, happy, you know, gay pride parade angles. Yeah, like right wing political correctness is dangerous in its subtlety because it's on one hand, it's like very obviously there. And on the other hand, it's so normalized and so deeply embedded within American culture that it's really easy to not notice it. Right. Like, and yeah. there's this feeling like, you know, when I don't stand for the national anthem or the Pledge of Allegiance, I'm the one being political, right? I'm the one taking a stand, as it were. And every single person standing and the fact that this song and this loyalty oath and this cheering for kids going off to the military, that's not politics. That's just is. And that's completely wrong. Totally. That's, that's infuriating. And it's dangerous. Very dangerous. Uh, the body count for that is so high. So everyone knows about never Trumpers. What are your thoughts on always Trumpers? Give me a, an example of an always Trumper. So I'm just, I just made that up. But, okay. uh, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're real. But. Yeah. So an example of an always Trumper would be directly analogous to an always Obama person. You know, I understand the excitement that people had when Obama first got on the scene, right? But if you were still supporting him after he got out of office, you've lost your mind. And it's a, a similar thing with Trump. Not that I understand why you were excited about him to begin with, but people just stubbornly, and you see libertarians do this too. They're just stubbornly attached to maintaining a support for him. Or it's still schadenfreude, like, ah, oh, he, he's triggering all the liberals. Like, great, the novelty mm -hmm. of that wore off about three years ago. Right. I mean, I guess now and then I, I've almost missed lame duck Obama. Because lame duck Obama was certainly less objectionable than um, than the earlier one. But if only the cult of the presidency by Gene Healy was assigned reading in, in high schools. Um, and that ended like on the cusp of Obama. We didn't even get that far. And the last two, my God, the cults involved. I mean, it's just another one of those things where it's everywhere so we can't see it is this terrifying esteem for the executive branch. And my hope for Trump is that he could break that, but I'm not very hopeful because I think that for liberals in particular, he's going to be so easy to brush off as this terrible anomaly who didn't have the policy experience, didn't have the law degree. He, you know, oh, this is what happens when we put a goofy businessman celebrity as president. Now, when we get the real smart guys back, you know, as, as we intended, it'll be it'll be OK again. And we'll we'll justify their atrocities because they're you know, they have a good policy spin and a sad face on them. Trump, I'm wondering, you know, if it's such a cliche, but like it, 
I'm thinking about the like, oh, if you're in prison, like go crazy so nobody will mess with you thing. Like he's so unpredictable, which is becoming predictable. But like what he did with Iran, you know, what the hell's going on there? Should we be happy that a war didn't start when he pushed us farther on that? Should we be relieved that he supposedly realized that it wasn't proportionate to kill 150 people to revenge a robot? Or should we be terrified that it was supposedly 10 minutes before a strike happened? I mean, both. What's scary about presidents and what is perhaps more scary about Trump is they could theoretically kill every human on Earth or start the process. And the fact that Trump apparently needs to be coaxed and handheld and babied is is quite terrifying. Um, and I think all presidents need that to some extent. Like, oh, they did the bare minimum. They only murdered a few people. We have to show them that we like that. We have to encourage them. Like, they're children, and we're all being held hostage by them. And it's very strange that we all accept that. Yeah, for sure. Do you think we're going to see another four years of him in office? Probably. I mean, it's so unpredictable now. I learned from my Playboy stuff was a lot of it was more straight political reporting than I had ever done before or even since. And I decided then that it was to write with confidence because that's what everyone else was doing. They don't actually know what's going to happen. And my God, did Trump prove that? You know, incumbents usually win. Maybe if we're really lucky, it'll be like Joe Biden versus Trump. Yeah. And then well, we'll yeah. all... Uh, <laughs> I'm more afraid of Kamala Harris. You know, she's not an old man like Joe Biden. Like, I, I didn't. I, I. Kamala's like, oh, well, that was two years ago, you know, when I was a horrible prosecutor. It was a different time. Yeah, she you doesn't know? even acknowledge her sins. Yeah. I'm more afraid of her than I am a lot of them, honestly. I feel that. Back on topic a little bit and to turn it to sort of a depressing thing that happened recently, there is a shockingly horrible photograph that came out recently showing a migrant father and his son who appear to be dead, washed up on a shore. Some would say that this is a natural result of restrictive immigration laws. What are your thoughts? I'd say that's true. And people are, you know, they're starting to pick at the guy and his choices and motivations. Like, oh, he wasn't about to be killed by some cartels. He just didn't have a good job to feed his family. So obviously it was his fault for trying to get into America. It's just another one of those prohibition things that kills people. I guess if we build a super duper wall, militarized and full of like 40 drones and 50,000 border patrol, maybe that wouldn't happen because... No, but it would happen. You know, people would take boats. It's a basic libertarian cliche thing where prohibition on something or a heavy, heavy restriction on something is pushing people in a more dangerous path towards that. The way that people who can't get pain pills get to heroin eventually. I mean, there's always it's why I sympathize with conspiracy theorists sometimes, because it feels so on purpose sometimes that they're causing these worse effects. I think in particular, the right has this very strange aversion to showing photos of things that actually happened. Like a photo of this kid who was killed by a drone is propaganda. Okay, maybe. But I mean, assuming the facts are correct, that this is the photo of the person in question in the country in question, then, you know, you have to see it. And I remember under the Bush administration, the whole can't take photos of flag draped coffins of soldiers. I mean, even that level of sanitized hint of death, they don't want you to see that. Or I believe a Japanese film crew filmed some really brutal Hiroshima scenes after the bombings. And the U.S. military took those and basically kept them under lock and key for several decades. I mean, they just nobody wants you to see the effects of policies. Um, and some people can dismiss them and you can become desensitized sometimes. But I think there's a place for seeing it when you know it's real. And those were real people. Right. What do you think people should be doing to help abolish borders? I don't know. All I know is I feel like I'm not doing enough. Yeah, I mean, I think races, R-A-I-C-E-S is good. I like to give money to Doctors Without Borders, which is not quite the same thing, but Without Borders is right there in the title. And the fact that they help everybody is what I like about them. The mindset of helping everyone, I think, is very good. You know, in terms of helping people closer to home, it depends on your skills and what you're willing to risk. 
I'm up near Pittsburgh where we have a surprising lack of Latin American migrants. And so I'm not seeing the really shocking stuff. The planned and then pulled back mass ice raids in all those cities, you know, Pittsburgh wasn't on the list. So I do feel divorced from it in a way that makes me feel bad that I'm not, it's not hitting me on the head the way it should. I will say that I was kind of disappointed. Was it last year? The ICE occupations that people started doing was such a libertarian move and so focused and specific. And so many libertarians got bogged down and like, well, you didn't do it under Obama. And there's all these federal redundancies. So why would abolishing ICE even help? And I was like, shut up. Like you have leftists, you have liberals, you have all these people saying this one federal agency is trash and needs to go and nonviolently impede it and libertarians were waffling about it and, and getting bogged down in stuff that didn't matter, even including libertarians who, you know, agree with open or open borders. And that drove me nuts because it was so focused and so so few protests are. It was the opposite of some kind of Occupy Wall Street. We have a list of demands thing. It was like this agency sucks. So we're going to sit here and annoy it. I love it. Yeah, totally. It always it always strikes me as awkward at best when some libertarians are supposedly about laissez-faire, but forget about laissez-passer. It's like, what if it were the other way around? You're totally for freedom of movement, but you're not for market exchange. Well, that doesn't seem to be all that intuitive. So why don't we just do both of them? <laughs> that's a good, I think that's the safe bet. We should probably do both. Yeah. So you've written for C4SS about flag burning before. What's your take on Trump and other Americans who are interested in making this act illegal? They are so stupid, (laughs) so stupid that I can't. And it's not I mean, forgetting like the fact that I'm not a fan of flags. The idea that that somehow isn't freedom of speech in any way is like, can we stop with the Candace Owens pretending that she's anything but just like a hack and Trump being in support of this, it's, it's his wild pandering, sure. But, you know, Trump has no interest in freedom of speech. And that's been obvious for so long. But again, oh, no, it's the college students who are the real monsters. I mean, it should be so obvious. It's just such a great pander move. And people like Hillary Clinton, I mean, this is a low bar, but like were in support of it when it was in fashion. And I don't see it coming back in fashion enough. It's just a brief flare up of stupidness. It's so obvious. I don't even know how to counter, you know, an argument that that should somehow be illegal. Totally. Wait, wasn't Trump's thing about stripping citizenship? Did he at some point tie that to flag burning? I can't. I don't know if he said it or some. If it were Candace Owens or I, I think it was Candace yeah, Owens con- who said I'm that. I'm confusing the two. But that's. I mean, that's lunatic. Like, how cheap must citizenship be if if it can go that easily? I don't even know if they actually believe what they're saying. Some of this just seems like... The eternal question in some ways. Yeah. It's like cheap shock politics. Yeah. So by the time this interview comes out, the 4th of July probably has already passed. But do you plan on burning an American flag or two? You know, I've never had the pleasure... I mean, that C4SS article I wrote after, like, and I even mentioned, I was like listening to Phil Oaks on the bus and I was like, ah, America, <laughs> man. Ugh, I just want to, <laughs> and like, I mean, it's, it's this like transubstantiation bullshit where this flag is every flag, which is America and all that it stands for. And I just, I don't accept that symbolism and the sacred cow of it means that it probably should be burned. But the sacred cow nature of it means that burning it probably won't change anybody's mind. Well, this is, yeah, maybe this is one way we can fight back against the uh, normalization of right wing political correctness. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. Like, I know William Gillis wasn't with me in that article, but he kind of got that I wasn't saying, like, flag burning's bad, guys. But, uh... I only recently learned that, what the hell is his name? Is it Johnson? I'm, I'm trying to remember. Is it Johnson v. Texas? I don't know. The flag burning case, mm-hmm. where basically the, the reasoning of the Supreme Court was, okay, we already burn flags to respectfully dispose of them. So if we outlaw burning a flag for protest reasoning, you are outlawing the motivation behind the act. And that doesn't seem like free speech, is my understanding of that case, which I find really interesting Law is the worst, but it's kind of fascinating. But the guy who did it, who is named in the Supreme Court case, is a follower of Maoist goofball Bob Avakian. And I never knew that. And you see his like 12 people at various protests 
And they're just, they're awful. <laughs> I didn't realize that the guy who gave us this very nice precedent was just like the worst. But he gave us that precedent. So that's the one good thing anyone associated with Bob Avakian ever did. So right after Charlottesville, you wrote a piece for antiwar.com called The Moral Superiority Among Neocons and Nazis. Why do you write this and what's it all about? I was trying to be really just like direct and like really prosaic about Trump is a douche and these people are douches. And yet the people preening about how outrageous Charlottesville was are some of the worst people in the world. It's just an old, you know, it's an old standby of like the societally approved awfulness and mass murder means that you get to be like, oh, my gosh, the scenes in Charlottesville were just horrible. I don't need Madeleine Albright to say that. I mean, I, I would prefer she didn't chime in. The army chief of staff thing. The army doesn't tolerate racism, extremism, or hatred in our reign. Jesus Christ. It's against our values and everything we stood for since 1775. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. That's amazing. Like, not even, <laughs> like, since, you know, World War II or, like, something. Like, no, since, like, pre-Indian Wars. Right. That's garbage. My Sorry, I completely God. forgot about that article. Now I'm horrified. So that's fine. Well, I guess to switch gears again, Justin Raimondo passed recently. What What are your thoughts on that whole thing? This is going to sound kind of mean, maybe, but like I was surprised by how sad I was when I saw that headline because not only have I, did I never meet him in person, I stopped interacting with him online entirely, like so many others, because you know I, I didn't like the direction he went with Trump and some of his framings and his stances and his arguments. Um, and Justin had so many of those over his life, though there was a consistent hatred of imperialism and killing people, which you know I. I I respect. But all of the the National Review had something. Uh, Michael Brennan Doherty wrote something. People who just like fully acknowledge this guy was mean sometimes. He was really hard to get along with. He was abrasive. And then they would say like, and he had these bold ideas. He wasn't scared of anything. And, you know, my first interaction with Justin online was this giant Twitter spat. And I got into like eight or 10 of those with him over the years. And half of them were great. And half of them were sort of upsetting. But like in the middle of it, he was like, he like invited me to lunch or something. Because <laughs> I don't know if I was in California, I was about to go out there. And he's, um, he was in northern-ish California. And I heard a lot of stories, tons of stories about him from Eric Garris, who I talk on the phone with a lot when, when I'm more involved with Antiwar.com. And he just was like a character um, and he wrote some bold stuff. He wrote some really good stuff sometimes and some stuff that drove me nuts. He got extra paleocon again, I think, in his, his final years. But I always think about a small blog post he did in 2008 where he was complaining about the very sort of nationalistic kind of xenophobic ad that the Ron Paul campaign had run about borders and was basically like, come on, Ron Paul, you know better than this. Like, this is not we don't need this. Justin was like a hundred different people and then like some some of them were really awesome and that one writing wise was really awesome. Everybody said he was fun to talk to and that he he didn't take much personally in, unless you were like, you know, a, a real through and through warmonger like some of the big spats he had with people like they were all part of his weird game. So I just yeah, I, I don't know. I'm 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 sorry for some of his ideas and some of the sentiments he expressed. I'm also sorry he's gone. I'm sorry that he had that awful disease. Um sorry for his husband. And Eric Garris, who, strangely enough, I've never met in real life either, but I've talked to on the phone a lot. I've heard many great anecdotes, many of which included Justin. Um, Eric and Justin were friends for like 43 years. Justin infuriated Eric all the time as well. And he was also loyal and devoted to him. I think he's probably really, really sad right now. I don't know. I, I, I do wish I could have met him in real life and sort of made his Twitter presence plus his books plus his column presence into a real person, because I think I probably would have enjoyed meeting him. I just like that people are being sort of classy about his passing without pretending that he was like the nicest. <laughs> like They're like, he was a jerk. He made me so mad. <laughs> but there's still these other elements that like, mm -hmm. make, you know, he was kind of unforgettable, I think. Yeah. Okay, so towards the end of these interviews, I like to do a lightning round where I list people or ideas and my guests get a one minute time slot to respond to each of the items. Are you down? Yeah. Okay, cool. Private prisons. 
Oh, they're awful, but a distraction that liberals and leftists are obsessed with because the incentives are perverse. They're also perverse in public prisons to act like they're the problem as opposed to just a part of the big sea of problem is unhelpful. But they're also bad. You know, I don't want to be like, it's like Gary North logic. Oh, but I privatized the bad thing. So it's good now. No. Yeah. Tulsi Gabbard. Um, I have to get even more into her background. I, I definitely like to see her playing some of the Ron Paul-ish cards in terms of non-interventionism. And some people think she's hot, so she'd be our first hot president, and that would be great. Um, <laughs> she's she's major problems with her, but obviously she's better on some very important things, which is why I assume she will fail. <laughs> yeah, reasonable gun control. I know that reasonable is a term that legal logic uses a lot. Like, what would a reasonable person do? But I don't I don't want that because no, thank you. (laughs) Taylor Swift kind of turned into the only pop person I like. My inroad to her was like the song Mean, where I was like, oh, this isn't real country. I wouldn't want to listen to this over and over again. And I was like, hmm, maybe I do. I think she's actually really talented, um, and I think that some of her early songs make that pretty obvious, but not everyone's cup of tea, of course, and that's that's fine. <laughs> What's your advice to others who are interested in pursuing a career in journalism? Oh, I could follow my dad's tradition and be like, dear God, don't do it. My dad used to tell me inside of a newspaper building to never get into newspapers. Literally, just like while standing in newspaper, because I was like f- helping him file at the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. Be like, don't get into newspapers. Like, but we're in a newspaper. Um, don't be a hack. Just be an alternative journalist who understands what like proof is and that reptilians don't run the world. That's the kind of journalism I always wanted to see that's borderline non existent. Question the government. Don't trust the government. But that doesn't mean that Facebook dot reptilian overlords is trustworthy either. You know? Yeah, for sure. What are some actionable things anarchists can be doing to help bring about a free society? Well, I'm partial to like you got to follow your strengths and, and even your interests. And, you know, it's like a lot of the C4SS people that we know are, you know, they're more academic minded than I am and more certainly much more into philosophy. And they're some of my favorite minds out there, as well as being lovely people. Um, and that's, you know, that's their road. Uh, people like Corey Massimino, who is a big old academic egghead, has also worked on trying to reach, you know, readers of newspapers and, and, and websites and stuff. But that's, you know, that's all on the writing side of things. As a libertarian, you know, I haven't done direct things very much. We don't do enough of that. You know, back, again, back to the, those ICE protests. That kind of thing is really great. I just, I don't know. I just think, I think there's a lot of avenues. You know, there's academia, there's writing, there's protesting, there's direct action. There is like living your own damn life. I know uh, Henry David Thoreau was only in jail for like a day, but in Civil Disobedience, you know, he talks about why he didn't pay the tax because of the uh, the Mexican-American War and stuff. And like he's putting, you know, all these ideas about risking something, paying something so that you don't help perpetuate these terrible things. But then there's also a line after he's freed, I guess his friend freed him and he was like, God damn it, I was trying to do a thing here. But he goes berry picking with some boys from the local village. And there's a line where he's looking around and he says, you know, the state was nowhere to be found. And that's like the gamut from A to B right there. It has to be up to you. But, you know, in the meantime, try to try to love human freedom and not just be annoyed by college students. Yeah. Are there any organizations or groups or anything like that that you recommend people get involved with or any ones that you might want to give a shout out to so people can look up? Well, I, as I said, I like to give money to Doctors Without Borders. I also like an organization called Liberty in North Korea. Some of us probably get nervous about anything that messing in the business of other countries and like sort of the connotations and the fears that that involves. But Liberty in North Korea doesn't take government or corporate money, at least as far as they say, as far as I know. And they do really substantial good in that they have people on the ground and they have safe houses and they have a whole organization set up to help individual people fleeing from North Korea. And their website, you know, highlights some of those people they've they've saved. I mean, it's really heartening when in the face of this dystopian novel of a, a country 
bombing, it's not going to help. Even like, you know, a CIA assassination is not going to help. Like you think, what can you do in the face of such a nightmare of a place? And Liberty North Korea does what I think a lot of us should do, which is, all right, let's save one person. And then when we can do that, maybe we save the next person. So I think they're really cool. Where's the best place for folks to go to read your work? Um, I have been a bit of a dud of late. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you should end it right there. No, that would be good. <laughs> If I write anything, it's going to end up on my Twitter, which is just at L-U-C-Y-S-T-A-G. And I'm feeling newly determined to get my uh, Patreon into gear because even if you give me like a dollar and I don't do anything, I feel bad about it. And once again, as the horror of election season draws upon us, I feel like you need me, the person who hates politics so much that she would rather ignore it and pick berries with boys from the village. (laughs) But instead, I think I'm going to do some stuff. I'm actually working on a long piece that I need to get back to. But that's just go to Twitter. What about the stag blog? Tragically defunct, but either it will rise again or something equivalent will. So, okay. you mentioned Patreon. Are there any other ways that people can support you and your work? Um, you can give me a job. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you could donate money to antiwar.com because they're like the scrappy underdogs of the libertarian movement as far as I'm concerned. But you could also give me a job. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Lucy Steigerwald, not Staggerwald. Um, <laughs> thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I, I enjoyed our conversation. Everyone who is interested in learning more about Lucy and what she does, go follow her. And your handle is at L-U-C-Y-S-T-A-G, Lucy Stag. Cool. All right. So, uh, yeah, that's it. Thanks again, Lucy. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. All right. Cool. We'll talk to you soon. comment or concern about this episode let me know how you felt about it by leaving a comment you can also send me an email through nonserviamedia at gmail.com or shoot me a message through twitter my handle is at joelanthony83 once again huge shout out to everyone who supports the show financially through patreon your support means the world to us and we couldn't do it without you if you're new to the show and want to check out our full catalog head on over to nonservium.media. You can also stay updated with our most recent content by subscribing to our YouTube, Stitcher, and SoundCloud accounts. If you like the work we do and want to see it continue, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash nonserviumedia. We appreciate all donations, big or small, and your support helps us keep the lights on. You can also help us reach a larger audience simply by liking and sharing this interview. Finally, be sure to keep an eye out for the next episode. Thank y'all so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.